You're listening to ReachMD on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Inspired to Act, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine. Inspired to Act is presented by PrimeMed, your leader in continuing medical education. Here is your host, founding chair, Department of Neurology, Brigham and Women's Hospital, and professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Martin A. Samuels. Does overcoming defeat and reversal in life and sport lead to success and career? Joining us today to discuss making the decisions that lead to a full life of accomplishments is world-class neurologist, author, and the man whose athletic triumph in 1954 has been ranked as one of the greatest of the 20th century, Sir Roger Bannister. Sir Roger, welcome to Inspired to Act, and thanks for joining me today. It's a pleasure. I'd like to uh, start by going back 55 years in time and think a little bit about what the climate was like around the time that you ran the mile that day in Oxford. I was nine years old at the time, but I've read about it a lot since. And what I've read is that many experts predicted that it was impossible. Was that, in fact, the climate? Yes, it had been said for many years that this was an ultimate, but it didn't make sense to me as a medical student if a person could run a mile in four minutes, 1.2 seconds, then by better training, better preparation, more natural talent, perhaps, it must be possible to break four minutes. So that really was the basis. And of course, during the war, the Swedes had been a neutral country and they had successively lowered the record to four minutes, 1.2 seconds. But then for nine years, it seemed stuck because we were recovering from the war and there was severe austerity. But I calculated and believed that it must be possible. And I had eight years as a medical student and thought I might as well do the best I could. (laughs) How did you balance? Our current medical students are always talking about balancing their lives uh, with their families and so on. How were you able to study This was actually during a very tough time in England during the war and study and prepare for this remarkable feat. How were you able to put that all together? Well, I was a medical student and cut my training to the bare minimum. I probably am the most lightly trained athlete. (laughs) And of course, many athletes now train far, far harder than I did, and which is one reason why they run much faster. But I used to take an hour off at lunchtime, sometimes missing an important lecture, in order to go to a track that was about three miles away and would do about 35 minutes of interval running, that is fast and slow, alternating, up to the point of exhaustion, and then I would be back at the medical school by about two o'clock. I didn't like to have my evenings interfered with. I had a number of other interests. What were your other interests above and beyond sport and uh, medicine? Well, I was, of course, involved in various administrative duties at the medical school. I was involved in theatrical activities, and I I had a lot of friends and would go out with my friends. So I had to work some evenings, of course, to catch up (laughs) and keep going. Uh, Sir Roger, you were apparently expected to win a gold medal in the uh, Olympics in Helsinki two years before this record. That didn't happen. What effect did that have on your morale or ultimately on breaking the four-minute mile, the fact that you didn't win the gold medal in Helsinki? Well, it was a tremendous disappointment to come forth, both to me 
and to my supporters and fans and the press in England. They had relied on me winning a gold medal, and as it happens, we didn't win any other medals in those Olympics except for a horse in the equestrian event. <laughs> so um, it made me think, and it was getting difficult to find the time for training, so I had to make the decision. Did I give up sport feeling dissatisfied, or did I try to go on for another two years by which time the four-minute mile would have become a feasible event, and also I had to run in the Commonwealth Games, Empire Games as they then were, in Vancouver. And so I had what was said as a, an annus mirabilis, if you like, in that last year, breaking the four-minute mile, then defeating Landy, who was my main rival for the four-minute mile, and had then also broken the four-minute mile, and then finally the European Championships in Bern, so I had felt then I had a clean sweep and was able to retire and get on with medicine, but for a certain amount of recreational running with the family, which then grew up four children over the course of six or seven years. So many people, I think, after those Olympics in Helsinki, uh, not accomplishing what you'd hoped to, might have given up at that point and said, well, I'll just study medicine. But uh, in fact, it in a way sort of hardened your effort to ultimately succeed, didn't it? It certainly did. That's quite true. On the day of that run, I, I remember when I first uh, met you, Siraj, I don't know if you remember this, but it was in Oxford. I'd given a talk, and you were so kind to me, invited me to your home, and we drove in your car. You were uh, telling me that uh, you had hurt your knee and you had, weren't able to run, so we were driving along the place where you had done the run. And you said that on that morning you had a feeling that something big might happen, even though I, apparently the weather was not perfect. Is that so? Did you feel that that was the day? Well, I definitely planned it for the day because I knew Landy was coming from Australia and I had to do it first, I felt. It was a bad day and the decision again was a difficult one because the weather was almost so bad that it wasn't worth attempting. With the high wind, you can run a mile in four minutes and four seconds, which on a perfect day would have taken you below four minutes. But I decided that it might be the only chance I had, and if I didn't take it, I might regret it for the rest of my life. So I took a chance on it and fortunately was successful. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Inspired to Act on ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Martin Samuels, and joining us today to discuss success in life and medicine is noted neurologist, author, former director of the National Hospital for Nervous Disease in London, and the man who, as a young medical student, made headlines around the world with one of the landmark events of the 20th century, running the mile in under four minutes, is Sir Roger Bannister. Can I talk to you a little bit about your neurology? Of course, for me, your accomplishments in neurology are just as monumental as those in sports. And for those who are listening who are not neurologists, Sir Roger is an eminent autonomic neurologist and one of the first people in the field what got you interested in autonomic neurology? Was it your running or was it some mentor in medicine that got you on that path? Well, I was a busy neurologist at two hospitals, and I didn't have a full academic department, which would have enabled me perhaps to study multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's disease. And I looked for an area in which I thought I had the skills and could make some impact. And I was already quite an experienced physiologist, human physiologist, and so had studied the circulation, blood pressure, and its control by the brain, 
and I realized that this was a relatively undeveloped field. It lay between general medicine and neurology and seemed to be rather neglected by both. And then I came across one or two patients with what was then called the Scheidrega syndrome, now called multiple system atrophy, and I could see that there could be tests applied to their cardiovascular system, which would enable us to learn more about the hypothalamus. And so having decided upon that, I pursued that throughout the rest of my neurological career, 25 years, and had laboratories and testing systems at the National Hospital Queen Square and then also at St. Mary's Hospital. And then I attracted other colleagues who were from general medicine and pharmacology. And so we formed a team and then wrote the first, uh, I think, textbook of autonomic function in 1982. And we're just preparing the fifth edition of that now. Starting an autonomic laboratory was uh, unique in those days. There weren't any autonomic laboratories in neurology departments or, for that matter, in general medicine departments that I'm aware of. So you were creating another something from scratch, weren't you? I think that's true. I mean, sweat tests had been invented but not pursued, and uh, particularly tilt testing to test the sympathetic vasoconstriction in the vessels, arterioles, in the muscles of the leg was new. But I'm very glad to say I founded a British Autonomic Neurological Society and then a World Autonomic Neurological Society. And this has flourished and there are many centers, quite a number of centers in America and in Europe and even the Far East, Japan. Of course, uh, this is the interface between the brain and the other organs. So for somebody who is such a spectacular athlete, it is in a way the perfect field of medicine. Yes, but I also, of course, was involved in sport, too, and in some aspects of sport, introducing drug testing for anabolic steroids and then mm. trying to encourage general increase in activity to improve general health with a sport-for-all scheme. So those were additional ways in which, although I was quite busy for my neurological career, I also was trying to help in public life, we had in Britain was founded a sports council. It doesn't have an equivalent in America. And this is a government-sponsored body. And I was the first chairman of this, trying to introduce a fitter program for those in Britain. As we come uh, near the end of the time that we have together, I wanted to step back and ask you perhaps a somewhat uh, more philosophical question. That is the relative importance of sport in life. Certainly in this country, and I know in, in the UK as well, in many parts of the world, sport has become extremely professionalized, very highly paid. It no longer really is just a part of one's general education. And I wonder if you think that that has been a bad outcome, and is there any way we can reverse that? Or maybe you think this is a good thing. No, I think there has become a division between top-level professional sport, in which even athletes train for three hours a day, which is not compatible with a normal career. And uh, I'm sad that recreational sport, which I think is a vital part of education, has been forced to take a back seat, as it were. But I don't think the times can be changed. The move towards more professionalism 
is to some extent inevitable, but I'm very encouraged by the extent to which recreational running, particularly in the United States, is still popular. A marathon may be rather a long way, but half marathons and five and ten kilometer runs, for recreational reasons, seem to be popular, and that makes me very glad. If you were forced to answer the question, uh, which do you consider the greatest contribution, a four-minute mile or all the neurology, what would you say? Well, uh, certainly the neurology was more important. It was more difficult. It extended over a period of 30 years. My running <laughs> was a fortunate accident, if you like, that I had some talent, and I was there at the time when the four-minute mile needed to be run. So I've always been grateful for that. But in the public mind, of course, I'm better known for my running than I am for my neurology. I think people just hearing your modesty about that can really learn an enormous amount. I wish I had longer to talk to you on this occasion, Sir Roger. Perhaps we can do it again. I'd like to thank noted neurologist, author, former director of the National Hospital for Nervous Diseases in London, and the man who was a medical student shattered the world record for running the mile, becoming the first to run it in under four minutes. Sir Roger Bannister, thanks so much for spending time with us this week on Inspired to Act, Sir Roger. Thank you, too. You have been listening to Inspired to Act on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine, hosted by Dr. Martin A. Samuels, and presented by PrimeMed, the leader in continuing medical education. At PrimeMed, we believe in you, the practicing healthcare professional, and we support your commitment to your patients. Our goal is to give you the tools to stay up to date with the latest developments in your field, whether you treat day-to-day -day patients and their average and not-so-average illnesses, or patients dealing with diverse chronic conditions. PrimeMed CME programs are designed for you. We know you each learn differently. That's why we offer education in a variety of formats. Live, because you like to interact with peers and faculty, online because it's convenient and available to fit your schedule, and in print because of its portability. Regardless of the medium, PrimeMed delivers knowledge that touches patients. PrimeMed CME is developed through extensive collaboration with leading professional associations, academic institutions, hospitals, technology companies, and over 1,500 prominent faculty. With over 120 live meetings and 300 plus online CME activities, 350,000 healthcare professionals globally trust PrimeMed as their source to stay better informed and educated in today's always-on world. We invite you to join us in person at an innovative cutting-edge meeting and clinical education program. If it's more convenient, visit PrimeMed online. For more information, visit www.pri-med.com. Thank you for learning with PrimeMed.